Like, why would I do that when I could sit at home alone on my couch and mm -hmm. eat Chipotle? I don't... Right? And the way I watch TV, like, the characters are my friends, so... Exactly! <laughs> <laughs> or, like, I've been getting, like, way too into, like, YouTube and, like, podcasting <laughs> that, like, my thing is, like, if I met any of these people in person, it would feel like we were best friends except they have no idea who I am and would probably think I was super weird <laughs> like I know every detail of your life and I listen to you as I fall asleep at night but no seriously I used to watch these like vloggers um like every they vlogged every day um that was like their thing um and it was this couple and I went through the highs and the lows like the proposal the wedding and then like he got like a brain tumor <laughs> and then he um you know the band we the kings yes um then he like their bass guitarist like quit and so they asked him to be like their new bass guitarist and like he had like a seizure while at a show like so many highs oh, and lows God. and then like one day they posted separate videos and he well he posted a, vid a video by himself and he was like just so you know like my marriage to Allie is over <laughs> And she, and then she posted a video. She's like, "Well, I was blindsided, um, but I guess our marriage is over." And like, he kept the dogs. Like, it was such an emotional roller coaster. And I was like, "I can't do this again. I'm out." <laughs> Fair enough. Yes, it's it's really a lot. And well, that's the thing is that like, what's exciting and also terrible is that so many big internet people are getting canceled over like legitimately awful things like it mm -hmm. started off with shane dawson Ugh. and now it's like james charles and david dobrik mm -hmm. and i'm just like fascinated by what is going down and it's awful how much these people were able to get away with just because of their like status symbol so hopefully you know we will learn as a society not to like idolize these people and like give them these huge platforms when they are like really quite problematic and toxic yeah i'd rather just be obsessed with meredith gray <laughs> like, yeah she's a character people. it's totally fine um the current show that i'm like struggling to finish because i've been watching it for years and they had their series finale late last year um and so before i like watched half of the final season i was like i can't do this i cannot <laughs> I cannot say goodbye to these people. They're my, like, best friends. Um, and so I just was like, Gerald, do you want to watch the series? And so we went back to the was beginning. Was it Schitt's Creek? No, no, no. Um, the 100. Like, oh, like, yes. You told me to watch that. Yeah, it's so good. Um, and so, like, we're now at, like, the, like, close to the end of, like, season six and they have seven seasons. And I have, like, refused to watch in, like, the past, like, three weeks. I'm like, I can't. Like, I can't. Um, so that's the one downside of like getting too into TV shows because I even just thinking about it, I'm like, I'm never gonna see them again. <laughs> yes, you will. I just started over. It's not the same. Like, yeah, no. I understand. Yeah. I understand. <laughs>
Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week, we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc., etc. If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on social media at pinkcollar underscore pod. Well, I'm exhausted, but... <laughs> um, so our typical spiel, leave us a... If you're an Apple user, um, leave us a review, rate us, whatever. It would be great um, for each thing we're doing a don't for each review or rate um we're gonna donate a dollar to the national center for victims of crimes Um, also it just makes my gosh dang day every time someone (laughs) says something nice about us so we would really appreciate it yeah at least for our self-esteem if nothing else you know (laughs) um cool and so this week's topic take it away rachel we are doing hashtag good crimes again i don't know if it ended up like being that i started when i was figuring out what case to do i'm like what even is a good crime like (laughs) i know we did episodes before um but i found something and and it all worked out i will take it away um so i did the very important case of annette kellerman who was arrested for wearing a one-piece bathing suit out in public. This was back in the day, of course. Things have changed a little bit since then. Is that a good um, crime? <laughs> <Sorry>. Yeah. <laughs> okay, keep going. Uh, and it is a good crime, and I will tell you why. Yes. Okay. So, she's my new personal hero, sort of. We'll, we'll cover what she said at the end. But So, Annette Kellerman a.k.a. the Diving Venus, a.k.a. the American Venus, a.k.a. the Million Dollar Mermaid. That's who I'm talking about today. So she was born on July 6th in 1866. Annette began her career as a swimmer at a very early age. It was said she suffered from bow-leggedness as a child, perhaps from being encouraged to walk too early. I did not know what that means. I did not know Maybe that's like one of those weird health things that they told babies to do back then. Um, But by the time she was nine years old, Annette had begun swimming as a therapeutic treatment for um, the issues with her legs. Um, Supposedly, this childhood ailment was actually from polio. She had to wear leg braces to correct the results of the disease and had to wear an iron brace up to her hips. This device was like torture and her father had... The papers had said that her father forced her to swim, even though she was deathly afraid of the water. But it's unlikely that this was actually the case and that newspapers were just greatly exaggerating, you know, what was probably a kind of minor leg problem. Um, But either way, by the age of 13, her ailment was corrected. Um, And she was swimming 10 mile stretches at 13. I don't even think that I could swim like a five foot stretch did you, At the age of 26. Did you mention, like, why were the newspapers writing about her? Because she gets famous later on. 
Oh, oh okay. I thought like I thought they were just like, oh, here's this like ten no, year old. They're like, here's this child. No, 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 no. So like when reflecting back on her life, okay. Um, yeah, so she would end up being like a super famous like swimmer, actress, blah blah blah. Um, but so she was competing in swimming meets as a teenager, and in 1904 she traveled to England as an athlete and a performer. It was a family business at the time, as her brother served as her manager. And in 1907, Annette ended up in the great United States, where she made her first documentary-style film in 1909. Annette was seen as a healthy authority and was in peak physical condition. She showed the world that swimming was not only a form of exercise, but also an art. There was one problem, though. Women were expected to cover it up at the beach. So in the 1900s, it was stylish to wear a seaside walking dress when spending a fun day at the beach or walking along the boardwalk. Uh, Picture a white button up or button down. I don't know. Isn't one for women and one for men? Like one's a button up and one's a button down? I couldn't tell you. I never know the difference when I'm trying to search for button up shirts. I'm like, is it button up or button down? I don't know. Button up? I'd say button. But it could also be button down. I, but I, I I don't think it's about direction. Or am I just making something up and there's no such thing as a button down (laughs) shirt? Yeah. Oh my God. Just ignore me. Anyway, um, white shirt with buttons does not matter the direction (laughs) they're going in, okay? Uh, With a a bow tie, uh, a full like multi-layered skirt that went all the way down to your ankles and like stockings and bloomers and shoes and like a full-on hat like that's what women were wearing to the beach that was like the appropriate beach attire i feel like you wore more clothes going to the beach than you would like in the winter time at home (laughs) yeah (laughs) like it was a lot if you look up pictures it was very excessive um And one thing I can't imagine is what people smelled like back then. So, like, I got a little sidetracked. And uh, supposedly, anthropologists uh, believed that humans, maybe we developed our our terrible BO because it's what helped us survive, like, back in the day when animals were eating us. (laughs) Um, So animals would literally recoil in horror when they smelled a person and moved on to eat something a little less repulsive, which is maybe why the human species was able to survive for such a long time. Um, Yeah, I definitely uh, think that my traits of how bad I smell was like passed down from my ancestors, so that makes a lot of sense. Um, the first trademark deodorant made its way to the market in 1888. It was called the Mum, and it took forever to dry. It was super messy, and it also burned the skin of the wearer and ate through people's clothes. So That's nice. You could wear your deodorant to the beach, but you probably were going to develop some armpit holes. But, you know, maybe that, like, allowed you to have a little bit of ventilation. <laughs> armpit holes. My God. Um... So women had the unrealistic standard of having to wear 35 layers to the beach and also have firearm pits. Um, So great times for women back then. Uh, Getting back on track, American women did not have, like, the right to vote in the early 1900s. They had very limited 
legal rights in general, including limited access to education, a lack of professional opportunities, and they generally were not allowed to engage in strenuous exercise as it was seen as harmful to their health, which I agree these days that exercise, strenuous exercise is very harmful to my health and I refuse to do it. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I exercise, but I hate it. Um, But women like weren't allowed to work out back then. Um, So not very many women knew how to swim, which may not seem like the biggest deal, but it denied women the right to save their own lives if there was an accident. A lot of people were traveling on boats back then. There wasn't cars or like airplanes. So knowing how to swim was actually quite an important thing. But Um, if you're like on a boat and the boat like, I don't know, sinks, I don't know how much swimming is going to help you. Yeah, but not knowing how to swim at all. And also you're wearing like a hundred layers of clothing. So you just shoot right down to the bottom like an anchor. I, I As somebody who can't swim, um, partial, mainly because I sink, like I'm a very dense person. <laughs> I relate. Yes, but, but listen to this. Okay. Um, so... There was an accident on the ship called the General Slocum. <laughs> Great name. Um, so it was out one day on the East River of New York City, and the ship had about 1,300 women and girls. They were taking these women to Manhattan for a church picnic. And so the ship caught on fire, and the women had to choose between burning to death on the ship or chancing it by jumping into the water. And the result was that a thousand women and girls ended up drowning because they didn't know how to swim. And it was in a river. It wasn't like it was, you know, in the middle of the ocean and yeah. there wasn't, you know, like if they had known how to swim, you know, maybe thought to like remove their clothes or s- at least shed some of their layers and just be able to float while like boats came to, to rescue them. But it resulted in the death of, of so many women and girls. And it was the single greatest loss of life in New York City before 9-11. Um, and it occurred, you know, early 1900s around this time. So you would think that there would be laws passed or, um, you know, they would start teaching women and girls to swim to prevent another great tragedy if something like this were to happen. Mm-hmm. But if you thought that, you would be wrong. Did you have to? Did you have to swim in high school? Did you have to take swim class? No. Oh, we had to. I um I had swimming lessons as a child, um, but like the instructor quit because I pinched him. So. <laughs> what? <laughs> so, I can't even. Um, he like held without explaining so I'm the type of person even as a child and everyone thought it was like disrespectful where like I need you to explain to me from beginning to end what is about to happen you know and so it's reasonable he like I was like three and he just like held my feet like underground or underground underwater or sorry held my feet and so like my head was underwater and so he was holding me like by my feet like and, dunking like, you yeah and i like freaked out and i like reached <laughs> and i like pinched him as hard as i could on his leg and then i was banned from the pool but so. why would they do that i have no idea 
that would like traumatize me for life yeah and now i have i feel like that's where my fear of like everything began and also my understanding that the whole world is trying to do me harm i mean that's fair in my swimming class we just like I think we like pretended to bake cookies under the water and you would like pat the surface of the water. So that's where my blindly trusting every human being came from, you know, assuming (laughs) everyone just could. Um, But yeah, we learn to swim. I want to do swim lessons as an adult now because, you know, I don't want my kids to drown. So in case you're on a boat and it lights on fire and, you know. (laughs) fair enough um but yeah we it was a requirement for us i don't know if it was just our school in general because we had a pool um or if it was like an illinois statewide thing but we had to take swim class as a part of our like graduation requirements Oh my gosh. And then we had like the big pool that was like so, so, so deep and like the little baby pool. So on the first day of swim class, they like threw you in the water essentially. And then you were either split into like the advanced like deep pool or like baby pool. Oh my God. I would have just volunteered for the baby pool. That's what I did. That's what I did. I was too scared. I was like, I'd be like, in fact, is there like a blow up kitty pool, like pond that I can just put my feet in? (laughs) Um, I feel like that's where we need to start. (laughs) But yeah, it actually ended up being very fun. And then I elected to take swim just like, well, it also depended too on what and this was like I feel like this was like pretty traumatizing to like young women to if you had your gym period was earlier in the day then you would have to like walk around with wet hair and like you know everything's so important in high school you would spend like all this time getting ready in the morning and putting on your makeup um and that you don't have the time to like wash and dry your hair before you go into your you have like 15 Mm -hmm. minutes to change also there was so much chlorine and probably urine in those pools that like you did not have adequate time to like shower or like do anything so it was it was when i had like gym as like last period of the day that i elected to do swimming because i thought it was fun but i was like the worst swimmer and i was so slow um I don't think they gave me very good grades, but it's a great exercise. And they would play music like under the water. So you could like listen to the music. They had like speakers. That's the kind of high school I went to. I didn't know that you could hear underwater. So if you, if they're playing the music underwater, <laughs> in the I didn't speakers, know your ears then you can worked hear underwater. <laughs> Apparently they do. Back to the case. I'm, I'm not a scientist. Okay. Um, so you're saying your comment earlier that was very disrespectful about women um why it's a big deal for women to be able to wear swimsuits or learn how to you didn't say learn how to swim but like um i just said if you my thought was if i'm thinking of the titanic and i'm like there's nowhere that you can swim to so you could swim but you're still gonna die (laughs) okay but that's like factoring in so many other things well of like i was you're just out thinking in the middle of like nowhere for me i'm like oh you're traveling by boat that means you're traveling across the atlantic that's i did it didn't occur to me that people were traveling by boat like in a river okay so it's just anyway. my ignorance okay gosh i'm not i'm not a woman hater <laughs> i don't believe it 
Um, so anyway, there was one day in 1907, uh, our good friend Annette just had it up to here with those gosh dang women's bathing suits. Or I think they had let her wear, you know, like swimsuits for when she was swimming before and competing. I don't think she was doing it in full on dresses. But so she went to the Revere Beach located right here in good old Boston. And she was training for an upcoming 13 mile meet where she'd be swimming 13 miles in the water, which like, dang girl. Um, So she was wearing a one piece suit. The suit ended in shorts above her knees. Very scandalous. So it looked kind of like a wrestler's uniform where it like comes all the way down. It wasn't like, you know, like a, what, what's that swimming TV show? The Baywatch, you know, when they're in the oh. little red swimsuits and like their boobs are all hanging out and stuff. Yeah. It wasn't like that. It was like a very, very modest one piece. And she had on like these really dorky goggles and like her swim cap. Like, no offense, but she was not looking like super hot. Um, but it was a scandal. So everybody else was in their beach costumes um in their dresses they had on like multiple pairs of underwear they had on their corsets and their shoes so like everyone was shocked and the police were called to this very important emergency um you know they wee wee their little police cars straight to the beach and arrested annette for indecency She would later tell the Boston Sunday Globe, me, arrested. We were all terribly shocked, especially my father, for I was his innocent, protected little girl. But the judge was quite nice and allowed me to wear the suit if I would wear a full-length cape to the water's edge. And to that I say, what a saint this judge was of allowing her. (laughs) So then she'd have to take the cape off to get in the water. Yeah, so she could so, like, only she couldn't just be walking cape. around. <laughs> well, then she'd have to go to jail, obviously. Yeah, like or like to the water's edge, the tide comes in, or I don't know, is this a what a beach? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, I just have so many thoughts. <laughs> just over dramatic. Like, okay, first of all, no one should be allowed to tell women what they are allowed to wear at any point, and um. Yeah, if she, like, she wasn't even trying to be, she was, like, just trying to swim 13 miles, like, God forbid. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so Annette went on to being, like, a super famous actress, like, swimmer. She was very cool, but she did have this legacy with the, the swimsuit incident. So her story inspired the 1952 film The Million Dollar Mermaid, starring Esther Williams. At first, Annette was apprehensive about the film and regretted agreeing to let MGM buy the rights to her story. She changed her mind when she met Esther. Esther. I want to pronounce it Esther, but I know it's Esther, right? Anyway, she was uh, dedicated to playing the role and telling Annette's life story. Annette said, I would have never thought her for the part. She's much too pretty. Which, like, come on, Annette. Have some confidence. (laughs) Um, But it's also pretty humble considering, so there was a Harvard professor, Dr. Dudley Argent, who had declared Annette the perfect woman after comparing her measurements to those of thousands of other women, which to me, I think this Harvard professor was just a little bit of a perv who was like, 
oh, I just want to, like, measure all these women for, like, scientific reasons. Don't worry about it. Um, so he was comparing all of these measurements to the ancient Greek statue, the Venus de Milo, which depicted the goddess Aphrodite. So it's that one very famous, like, Greek uh, statue with the arms cut off. So it wasn't even, like, scientific in any way. It was just, like, some people made a statue all this time, and I'm just going to measure a thousand women and then declare this woman the perfect figure. But okay. Um, So despite this legacy of being the champion of the one-piece bathing suit, uh, the bikini had debuted on July 5th of 1946, and Annette was surprisingly not on board with this style of swimwear. She said, the bikini bathing suit is a mistake. Only two women in a million can wear it. And it's a very big mistake to try. The bikini shows too much. It shows a line that makes the legs look ugly, even with the best of figures. A body is at its most beautiful when there is one beautiful, unbroken line. Interesting. doesn't make any sense to me, but... Uh, Yeah, I I don't get the picture she's trying to paint, but maybe she was right. I don't agree. I think anyone can wear a bikini, and everyone looks beautiful. Oh, I'm talking but... about the the line. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess it's because it like breaks up the flow of the body as opposed to like a dress, creating like a solid line. I don't know. I don't. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> but saying it's too revealing. I mean, I guess you don't want to wear a bikini when you're like swimming 13 miles, but. It's ironic that you were the champion of the one-piece swimsuit, and we're like, it's ridiculous that I'm getting arrested, and then we're like, bikinis? No, that's where I draw the line. (laughs) So she's a problematic hero in my book. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's all I had. Oh, that's the end of the case. (laughs) That's the end of it. It was pretty short. Oh. (laughs) Cool. Um, I know. It's very... Well, I thought... You told me what your case was, so I was like, well, I don't want to do anything that's, like... Intense, yeah. Too out there. Um, Cool, I guess. (laughs) I don't know. Go Annette, but also, I I don't know. She's entitled to her opinions. I feel like you also have to... It is, like, the olden... Like, not olden times, but, like, not the norm, and I think everything takes there's a little bit of shock and adjustment so i'm not ragging on her too hard for for her anti-bikini stance (laughs) i just think that it's so ironic it doesn't really seem all that long ago it was like less than 200 years ago that all of this went down where women were wearing full-on dresses and like gowns and costumes to the beach and now Mm. we have like victoria's secret and all these other instances where women's bodies are like commercialized in a sense for money but like still there's this expectation of modesty not when you're at the beach i would imagine but yeah it's still not perfect mm-hmm. but it just like it wasn't that long ago that they're like oh how dare a woman even show her ankle at the beach and <laughs> now you can like walk into the mall and there's like 10 foot billboards of women in yeah terrible underwear i think the moral of the story is that unless you know the female in question is 17 or younger and you're their parent um let women wear what they're comfortable in um 
Yeah. <laughs> Amen to that. Cool. That's what I'm going to tell my bosses when I only wear sweatpants to work after the pandemic. All right. <laughs> okay, so I am doing the case of Miriam Rodriguez. Um, and so a really great New York Times article came out about her last year that I highly recommend everyone read if you're interested. Um, and I'll, it's also one of my main sources. Um, so, yeah. Um, so in January 2012, Karen Rodriguez, a 20-year-old woman, was kidnapped while driving home from work in San Fernando, Mexico, when her worst fear happened. Her pickup truck was cornered by several men armed with guns. Some of the men jumped out, jumped into her car and drove off. Um, they drove Karen to her family's home, where she stayed during the week while her mother, Miriam Rodriguez, worked as a nanny in Texas during the week, which it like, I feel like I knew that there were people from Mexico who basically commuted to work in Texas. But um, just to think like you have to spend like a whole week in another country um, to like care for other people's kids. Um, Very much like the help vibes. And that movie is problematic. So plus, I can't imagine that driving through the border and having to like show your ID or there's probably like a lot of documentation that's required to Mm -hmm. go through every single day so you have to climb the whole wall Natalie (laughs) Jesus I also feel like odds are why a family in Texas would be looking for a nanny in Mexico is because they probably feel like they could pay them less and so that Mm -hmm. also is problematic but I digress. Um, So they had Karen bound and gagged on the living room floor when the family mechanic knocked on the door. The kidnappers panicked and fled, taking both the mechanic and Karen with them. Uh, The people who had kidnapped Karen were members of the Zetas cartel, who were once an armed faction of the Gulf cartel. The Zetas had since uh, broken off on their own and were at war with their former bosses. But war is expensive. So the Zetas would snatch innocent people off of the street and dangle their release in front of their loved ones in exchange for ransom payments. But it wasn't all business to the Zetas. They'd even make it, made a sport out of forcing some of their captives into death matches against one another, um, which also what? problematic. Um, and also another plug for the 100. Um, guys, watch the 100. <laughs> Oh my god. Um such a good show. Um and so fortunately for the mechanic, the kidnappers had um never planned to keep him, so they soon let him go, keeping only Karen in their custody. That was the last time Karen was seen alive. Unfortunately, kidnappings, extortion, and murder by cartels were not rare occurrences, and local police had not been able to stop them. Um I was also I'm kind of under the impression that local police didn't care enough to stop them like it was much more of a lift i guess um, oh, i've seen the ozark i know how the police and the <laughs> the cartel works you yeah. know um i saw that first season heartbroken and angry karen's mother miriam um had become determined to bring her daughter home and to bring these cartel members to justice she began working on her own investigation to collect as much information as she could on the people um she believed to have taken to have taken karen 
Her first goal was to find Karen, of course, and her second was to turn over as much information about the cartel members to the police to have each person apprehended and convicted by any means necessary. So following Karen's abduction, um, her family received countless ransom requests and false promises that Karen would be returned safely. With each ransom request, Miriam and her husband would follow the instructions to the T. They'd bring the exact dollar amount in the exact kind of bag to the exact location at the exact time that the Zetas had had instructed. And each time Karen was not released. Each ransom request demanded a different lump sum of money, and despite sometimes not having it, the Rodriguez did whatever they needed to get the money, even taking out loans to satisfy the ransom. Each time, her desperate family complied, hoping that this would be the time that Karen would be reunited with her loved ones. Miriam felt like she had nothing to lose by asking to meet with the members of the cartel just to get some answers. Surprisingly, they agreed, um, and she met with a man, a Zeta member who, of course, did not identify himself at a restaurant for a sit-down. There, she implored and begged for the release of Karen. According to him, the Zetas didn't even have Karen, but he added that if Miriam Miriam gave him $2,000, he would help her find Karen. Of course, she was desperate, and so she paid him the two grand. Um, given the high stress of the situation, I think Miriam's, um, I keep saying Miriam, Miriam's awareness, um, seemed to probably have been a little heightened. And so the Zetas member sitting across from her, um, he was wearing like a walkie talkie. And so sporadically there was like a lot of like static and like muffled words that would come through during their meeting. Um, but then she was able to hear the man being referred to as Sama, or Sama, I'm going to say Sama, Um, and that name and his face uh, became etched in her mind. Miriam interviewed the mechanic who was momentarily kidnapped with Karen for any and all details he could remember. She scoured his mind for everything um, he could remember about the kidnappers, about the direction they were driving in, about everything. From that, she was able to confirm that Sama was among the Zeta members involved in Karen's abduction that day. Not unlike a lot of people, even the cartel members are on social media. And so Miriam became an internet sleuth. She spent hours scouring Karen's Facebook for any clues or connection to Sama or anyone who could lead her closer to finding her daughter or making sense of what happened. Then one morning, it happened. She found a picture of Sama. Sama, whatever. Even better, he was tagged. In the picture um, was a young woman wearing a work uniform. Miriam put her investigative skills to the test and found that the uniform was for an ice cream shop located two hours away from where she lived in San Fernando. Miriam staked out the ice cream shop for weeks, taking notes on the woman, memorizing her work schedule, and waiting and hoping that Sama would show up. Um, one day he finally did when the two left together, she followed them home and took note of the address. She thought that this would be enough for the police to act, but they needed more information about Sama and this woman. So Miriam became an expert in disguise using fake IDs, cutting and dyeing her hair and changing her overall appearance, um, whenever she needed to. So now her hair was shorter, bright red, and she posed as a 
pollster and health worker by wearing an old uniform that she'd kept from when she worked for the health ministry years prior. Now disguised as a pollster, that made it easy for her to walk around and collect names and addresses, allowing her to collect some basic information on one of Karen's abductors. Still, the authorities would not help her. She knocked on every official door that they could, that she could, and they all turned her away, except for one federal police officer that was willing to help, more or less under the table. So it wasn't like a f- official investigation, but he was like, okay, if you bring me the information, then I will, you know, get these people arrested. Uh, That police officer described the files, details, and information that Miriam had compiled as being like nothing he'd ever seen before. He recalled she had gone to every single level of government and they had slammed the door in her face to help her hunt down the people who took her daughter. It was the greatest privilege of my career. Uh, By the time the warrant for Sam's arrest was filed, he was nowhere to be found, so Miriam focused her attention on other members of the Zetas. Then, by luck, on Mexican Independence Day, which is September 15th, 2000, um, which is September 15th, and in this case it was 2014, Um, and so this was more than two years since Karen um, was taken, Sam reappeared in Miriam's son Luis's uh, shop in Ciudad, um, Victoria. And so from there, Miriam and Lewis followed him until the police arrived and arrested him. In once in custody, Sama began spilling all the beans, giving up the names and locations of other called cartel members involved in Karen's disappearance. Um, Wait. <laughs> didn't you know that the kids these days they say spill the tea instead of spilling the beans? I thought about writing that, but I'm like, I don't know if Rachel I would know what phrase. spill the tea means. <laughs> Of course I... Do you know how much, like, Gen Z YouTube I watch? (laughs) Also, did you ever play the game Don't Spill the Beans when you were a child? No. Oh, my God. That was, like, one of my favorite games. Did it involve beans, or was it Yeah, you had, like... It was... it, It was kind of like... I think it was, like, Seesaw kind of thing, where, like, you... Oh, I'm trying to remember the exact thing, but you, like, enter... Let me... Let me look it up so I can, like... I do remember, um... Don't spill the beans. It was, like, a balance-type game where... When I see a picture of it, I'll remember. Yeah, you, like... You put the beans on top of a wobbly pot, and you didn't want to make the pot tip. Did so, you stack them? <laughs> like, how? I don't get it. I think you maybe had to, maybe it was like you did one bean at a time, or maybe there was like a certain number of beans that you had to put, but it's kind of like Jenga, where like, it's a balancing game, except it was beans, and then if you put the bean the wrong way, the pot would dump out, and you would lose. Um, did you have a lot of beans as a child? No, the, the game came with the beans. Oh, I thought you were using real beans. No, I don't know if the beans were real, but they came with the game. I'm literally imagining, like, I'm not imagining this is like a game, like a, a legitimate game that you would buy. I'm imagining child Rachel getting a pot from her mother's kitchen, like making it so that it's unstable and wobbling, and then opening a bag of like pinto beans and entertaining herself. No, that's more like my life now, but back then, 
No, 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 no. It, okay, picture like a foundation with like one hole on one side and one hole on the other, and in the middle is a pot. So if it dumped, like y- you were either on the right side or the left side, and you would want it to spill over onto the other person's side. Oh, okay. It's a two-person <laughs> game. Okay. You're right. Right, so <laughs> you, you didn't want it. Never mind. <laughs> All right. So back to Samus spilling the beans. <laughs> um, so he was not playing the game, spilling the beans. He was just um, telling authorities all of the information. Um, and so, yeah, he gave up um, the names and locations of other cartel members involved in Karen's disappearance. One of the people that Sama named uh, was 18-year-old Christian Jose Zapata Gonzalez. Um, he was young and scared during his interrogation. And despite his involvement in the abduction of her daughter, Miriam, who stood outside, heard him say that he was hungry and went out of her way to give him her lunch, saying, he's still a child. No matter what he did, when I heard him now, it was like hearing my own child. Um, and so possibly because of Miriam's compassion, Christian broke and told them everything and even offered to take them to the ranch where he knew captives were being taken um, to be killed and buried. Unfortunately, the hope that Miriam would see Karen alive came to an end that day when Karen's body and belongings were found in an abandoned field scattered with other people mm. who'd also gone missing under similarly horrifying circumstances. According to the New York Times article that I mentioned, mass graves in this area were were so common that a, that if less than 20 bodies were found at a time, it barely made the news. That's horrible. Right? Um, Miriam was heartbroken, but no less committed to bringing everyone involved to justice. On the way back from the ranch where Karen was found, they passed a diner that Miriam had eaten at a couple days after Karen was first kidnapped. She remembered talking to a woman there named Elvia Bedencourt. Someone Miriam had known since she was a baby. Um, Elvia had acted like she had no idea about Karen being kidnapped, even though it was major news in the area. At the time, Miriam thought it was odd, but now that she was in full-on detective mode, it occurred to her that maybe Elvia knew something about Karen's kidnapping. Then Miriam found out that one of the people she'd identified as one of Karen's kidnappers, um, who was already in privilege, sorry, who was already in prison, was previously in a relationship with Elvia. Too many coincidences for Miriam, so she conducted another stakeout. Through all of her careful investigations, she also learned that some of the ransom calls had come from Elvia's house. With enough information uh, gathered, Miriam turned over the information to the police who arrested Elvia. Over the course of three years, Miriam continued to collect um, clues that continually led her to the cartel members, families, and friends, and she'd invented ruses uh, that she could use to meet their unsuspecting relatives who would unknowingly give her details on the people she was looking for. She found that some cartel members were dead, others were in jail on unrelated charges, and many of the ones that were free had begun forging new lives independent of the cartel. Miriam didn't care and still aimed to take them down one by one. From one of the former cartel members' grandmothers, uh, she learned that Enrique Yoel Rubio Flores was, had become a born-again Christian. 
and regularly attended church. So, of course, Miriam started attending services at that church until one day the police arrived and arrested him. Parishioners were shocked and begged Miriam and the police to have mercy on Enrique. Miriam responded, where was this compassion when they killed my daughter? Boom. Facts. Like, sorry you gave your life to Christ, but too little too late, buddy. Um, I guess you could still be a Christian in prison. Um, Another time, she gathered enough information about a suspected cartel member. Um, She'd learned that before joining the Zetas, um, this particular person had made a living selling roses on the street. And now that he was on the run and trying to lay low, he was back to his street merchant roots. So Miriam, wearing a trench coat over her pajamas and a ball cap to disguise her hair, searched the streets and bridges where street merchants could be. By luck, Miriam found him and stalked him on the bridge while he was selling sunglasses on the street. As Miriam approached, the cartel member recognized her and ran. Miriam, who was 56 at the time, chased him down and tackled him to the ground. She held a gun to his throat and told him not to move, otherwise she would kill him. Uh, she held him at gunpoint for over an hour until police were able to get there and arrested and arrest him. In that three-year period, Miriam had helped to capture almost almost every free living Zetas member who was involved in the abduction and murder of Karen, a total of 10 people. Of course, Miriam's actions made her a huge target. To make matters worse, in March 2017, over 20 prisoners escaped the same institution where many of Karen's abductors were sentenced to. Miriam was reasonably worried for her safety and the safety of her family. And so while chasing down one of the last targets on her list, Miriam fell and broke her foot and was in a cast. Now she was especially vulnerable. So she'd asked local, state, and federal authorities for security to protect her from retaliation, but never received the protection she'd requested. Unfortunately, in May 2017, on Mother's Day, Miriam, who was on crutches, was walking towards her front door just after 10 p.m. when a white Nissan pulled up behind her. The truck was filled with men who had escaped from the prison months earlier. Before Miriam could do anything to protect herself, she was shot at 13 times. Her husband found her in the street with her hand in her purse holding her pistol. She died on her way to the hospital. And so that is the case of Miriam Rodriguez, who was a total badass. Um, Honestly, I don't even care for Ozarks anymore. This is what I want to see, like a TV show about her life. Yeah, seriously. Um, And I was reading other articles about how, like, women in Mexico are, like, on the front line of, like, being vigilantes against cartel members now. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's also a group in... I forgot, it might be South Africa, um, I forgot what country it is, um, but it's, like, women who, um, like, have created almost their, like, own, like, little militia, like, they definitely wear, like, military-type, I don't know, camo, I guess, I don't know if it's military, but camo stuff, um, mm-hmm. and I think their objective is to, like, protect, like, the wildlife and stuff, and so, um, I don't know, just seeing stuff like that is, like, so cool. I wish there wasn't a need for it, mm-hmm. but... Yeah, like, women being on the front line of things like this is just, 
so admirable. And this lady, like, wow. <laughs> I hope that's what my mom would do. Or you I, could do it. If I would <laughs> sure, I would, I would totally do it. Um, I don't think my mom would do that. I think she would believe that, like, like the punishment that they will get when they die would be, like, enough for them. But I would prefer somebody to go after them with at least a baseball bat. So... I got you, don't worry. <laughs> I, like, told Drell, like, if I get, like, murdered under, you know, I mean, any circumstances, but unsavory circumstances, um, like, burn the world down. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. that's it. Scorched earth. It's over. Um, so, yeah, don't kill me if you guys want to stay on earth, um, which is another plug for the 100, because it's about <laughs> earth. <laughs> This podcast brought to you by the 100. Yes, the 100. Um, such a good show. <laughs> anyway, any thoughts? Any closing closing thoughts on our good crimes episode? Just wow, what like a difference between the two cases that we <laughs> yeah. picked. But that's why. That's why I was like, I gotta go with a lighter, yeah, a lighter vibe because mm-hmm. like your person just like deserves to be the star of the show. <laughs> um, and I'll just do like a, a swimsuit or whatever. <laughs> One random, so our cases last week, I felt were kind of, like kind of similar, like you know, murdering fa- or poisoning family members. They both kind of were on the lamb for three years. Mm-hmm. Um, but then after I like posted, I realized that I was calling my person Audrey the whole time, but that was her like first name, but she went by like Marie, and so all the legal documents were also Marie. And I'm like, that's so weird. I wonder if it was like Rachel's person was like reincarnated in this woman. <gasps> could have honestly, it could have been. Yeah. Do you believe in reincarnation? I don't know what I believe in, but like is my mind open to possibility? Sure. I sometimes believe oh. my dog is Whitney Houston, so <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Interesting. I just um, love Whitney. <laughs> Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast.